Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, we turn our attention to the violence in Somalia and its impact on the surrounding region and the threat it poses to regional stability in East Africa. We look at the impact of sanctions on Iran and we discuss what's happening to the Chinese economy and the effect it will have on relations with the United States. I'm joined in the studio by William Wallace, the FT's Africa editor, Richard McGregor, our former bureau chief in Beijing, and by David Blair, who's the FT's Middle East and Africa news editor. William, let's start with you and this situation in Somalia. I mean, it's been a mess for a very long time, but it looks this week like it's getting even worse. We've had this very violent terrorist attack in Uganda, and I gather that things in Somalia itself are also degenerating. Can you just give us a recap on what's been going on? Well, at the moment, the death toll from the bombings that took place last Sunday in Kampala, the Ugandan capital, uh, has reached about 74 people. This is something that governments in the region have feared might happen for a very long time. And there's been a general fear in the region that the Somali crisis could spread beyond its borders. The Al-Shabaab militia, which is fighting against the Western-backed and very fragile transition government in Somalia have threatened for a long time to carry out attacks against African countries that have provided peacekeeping troops in Somalia, and those include Uganda and Burundi, and they have claimed responsibility for these attacks. In Somalia itself, what's the balance of power between the al-Shabaab militias and, and the central government? Well, the central government uh, really isn't a central government. It's an authority that was produced out of externally mediated peace talks between various warring clans in Somalia and that has been imposed by the outside world. It basically controls only a few blocks of Mogadishu and is propped up by this small 5,000, 6,000 strong African Union peacekeeping force which protects the airport, the port and the presidential palace. It does have other allied forces around the country, so it can claim that it it controls parts of central or has some influence in parts of central Somalia and also in the capital. But the al-Shabaab militias now hold control over large swathes of the south and bits of the centre of the country and also the capital Mogadishu. Now, the great kind of Western nightmare, aside from the regional impact, is that we have yet another failed state that becomes a base for jihadism, for violent Islamic uh, attacks on the West or Islamist-inspired attacks on the West. What evidence is there that there is a risk of that in Somalia? There's been concern about this for a very long time, and in particular that was heightened post the 9-11 bombings. But also prior to that, some of the al-Qaeda terrorists who were responsible for the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassy in Nairobi had taken shelter in Somalia. The evidence that there was a real influence and network of international jihadists inside Somalia was pretty weak until recently. But the 2006 invasion of Somalia by Ethiopian forces, which had the blessing of the US, did serve to to radicalise the Islamist insurgency in Somalia. There's good reason for both 
the neighbours of Somalia to have real concern because we've seen this bombing in Uganda. There's good reason for Western capitals, Washington, London, to be worried about jihadist influence in Somalia. Everybody has reason to be concerned. But is there any sense that people will actually want to intervene because people have been burnt badly before? Yori Museveni, the Ugandan president, has been talking tough in the last 24 hours and is basically calling for considerable reinforcement of the African Union force and for it to have a much more robust mandate that it would allow it to go after the Islamist militants inside Somalia rather than just protecting the transitional government. I think there's a considerable sympathy for that within the region in, in other states who are worried about the evolution of events in, in Somalia, such as Kenya, but also probably Ethiopia as well. So I think there is a chance that the at least the African Union force will be strengthened. And as an outside observer, finally, I mean, what do you feel about that? Because, of course, the situation in Somalia is appalling and one feels that, in the f- terrible phrase, something must be done, and yet you were painted quite a bleak picture of the impact of the Ethiopian intervention in 2006. Do you think a pan-African force, a beefed-up pan-African force is a good idea? Somalia has been failing and breaking down as a state for 20 years, and most of the attempts to fix it have involved attempts at imposing an externally mediated central authority, giving it some training and capacity to go after its enemies, and then propping it up with what you've got now, some kind of external force. None of them have succeeded, so it is questionable whether it will succeed again this time. Equally of concern is the fact that the insurgency is justifies its existence both on nationalist and radical Islamist grounds. And if they can say that they're under savage attack from outside forces propped up by you know, the Americans in the background, that will presumably be something with which they can attract fresh recruits. So uh, I, I think in bombing Kampala, they also will have wanted to escalate the conflict on a regional basis. At the moment, it looks like that's exactly what they may get. William, thank you very much indeed. Now to another international trouble spot and something that diplomats spend an inordinate amount of time trying to work out how to solve to Iran. We've had a package of UN sanctions passed quite recently. With me to discuss the impact of the sanctions and the general situation in Iran is David Blair. David, is there any evidence that these sanctions on which the US uh, has put so much faith and emphasis are likely to achieve their goal? Let's talk first of all about the economics. Well, there's no doubt at all that the Iranian economy is in deep trouble. The central bank in Tehran disclosed recently that there was no GDP growth at all this year or last year. And that's despite the fact that oil prices are still pretty high. But how much of that is down to sanctions and how much of that is down to the government's own policy errors and to the structural weaknesses of the Iranian economy is open to debate. Put bluntly, the government of Iran is pretty good at damaging the national economy on its own without having any outside help. And the UN sanctions are actually far less effective than the unilateral US measures and those that we expect to be taken by the EU. Those are perhaps the really critical measures in isolating the Iranian economy. It's interesting because, you know, the argument for UN sanctions was that, well, if the US or the EU take action unilaterally, the Iranians can always get around it by banking relationships with with Asia or trading relationships with Asia. But that's not the case, is it? That They're still very damaging, even if it's just Europe and America. Yes. Probably the single most damaging measure that's been taken against Iran is to progressively shut the country out of the global banking system. So no bank now, which has any international presence, is really willing to do business with Iran. 
because if they do that, they risk being shut out of not only the US market, but probably the EU market as well. So you have a situation where Iran has enormous capacity to earn revenues by exporting its oil, but there's no banks in which that money can be handled. So they find themselves in a situation where they're hobbled by by the very success that their economy has in generating cash, because there's no banking system that can take care of it. Now, obviously, crippling the Iranian economy is not an end in itself. The, the hope is to achieve some sort of political effect, and particularly to stop the Iranian nuclear program. Is there any evidence that that might happen? It seems very unlikely that the government is going to make major policy changes simply because of outside pressure of this kind. But I think there's a secondary objective here, um, which isn't really stated, but which is implied. And that is that the sanctions are aimed at slowing down the Iranian nuclear program and hampering it, and in particular, hampering its ability to obtain spare parts and technology from abroad and also financing. So... In a sense, uh, we can all talk about the goal of, of, of preventing Iran from reaching the point where it could build nuclear weapons. But you can almost sense the agenda shifting now, where actually the goal is to slow the program down, buy more time for diplomacy and pressure to perhaps have an effect. Perhaps a regime change within Iran? Uh, and, and implicitly, even, even uh, less uh, loudly spoken, perhaps for political change in Iran to, to take on a momentum of its own. So I think the game now is to buy time the objectives have been downgraded, if you like. Meanwhile, of course, there's an impact on the region. And this was a a subject that we raised earlier today with Simeon Kerr, who's our correspondent in Dubai. Fiona Simon, one of our news editors here in London, gave him a call and discussed with him how Dubai, this great regional entrepot, is being affected by the Iranian sanctions push. What shape has the latest crackdown taken and what, what impact has it had on the Iranian trading community? increasing inspections to make sure that front companies don't operate here in order to bring illicit goods into Iran. At the same time, we've got UN and US sanctions, which have been getting increasingly tough over the last three years, four years or so. Those sanctions have really hit the trading community here hard, particularly the financial sanctions, which have attempted to isolate the Iranian financial system from the rest of the world. And it's been quite successful in that. So, for example, the trading community here in Dubai very much depend on access to credit in order to fund trade. But they are now finding it almost impossible to access credit from institutions based in Dubai. Western banks say no, and are even deciding to close down accounts of Iranians just because they're Iranian. At the same time, the regional banks are also signing up to because of a general perception in the international financial community that, once again, any kind of Iranian transaction could bring headaches with it. So the trading community here, by a combination of international measures and also a domestic tightening up, have basically found themselves increasingly isolated and finding it very difficult to do that do their business anymore. And so some of these are looking elsewhere to carry out trades. There's a lot of talk about moving operations to Malaysia or Turkey or other parts in the Gulf in order to get round the strictures they're finding in Dubai, which has always traditionally been very open for them. That was Simeon Kerr speaking from Dubai earlier today. David, before I let you go, one final question. There's been this uh, incredible spy scandal with the uh, Iranian nuclear scientist turning up in Washington, apparently just being deposited at an embassy there, and him saying that he was abducted and put under all sorts of pressure and so on to reveal the secrets of the Iranian nuclear program. The Americans, of course, saying 
no, no, it's much more complicated than that, and they're denying that that was the case. What do we actually know about this case? Well, in the early hours of this morning, he arrived back in Tehran, and he gave a press conference at Imam Khomeini Airport, and he spoke out for the first time and gave his side of the story. And his side of the story is that he was simply uh, kidnapped, placed under enormous pressure in, in the United States, that he resisted that pressure and has now, in an entirely unexplained way, returned to Iran. It's worth bearing in mind that he gave this side of the story in the presence of two Iranian government ministers, obviously in Tehran. So it's certainly open to question whether that's really what happened. I think the key point is that if the Americans really had abducted him and held him against his will, then why on earth would they have let him go? (laughs) Why would they have allowed him to return to his home country and spill the beans, as it were? But equally... The weakness with the the other theory, which is that he defected, the weakness there is why on earth did he defect while leaving his wife and his seven-year-old son in Tehran? So neither explanation makes a great deal of sense. And frankly, this whole affair is extremely mysterious, and I'm not sure that we will ever quite get to the bottom of it. You've disappointed me. I hope you're going to tell us over the coming week we'd reveal all in the Financial (laughs) Times, but perhaps we will. Uh, So, David, thank you very much indeed. For our our last interview in the studio today is is Richard McGregor, a China expert, uh, now Deputy News Editor, formerly Beijing Bureau Chief. Richard, all eyes as ever on the Chinese economy and its role in powering the global economy. Now that there's some talk of a slowdown in China, but it's a very Chinese sort of slowdown. They still seem to be growing at 10%. What's going on? Yes, it's an, another high-speed slowdown, if you like. The second quarter figures which came out today, I think, record growth of 10.3%. And at that you know, headline, an absolutely enormous headline figure has been greeted with commentary like that's the end of the uh, tightening phase. In other words, time to let the the dogs out again and uh, get it going even faster. Now, the reason for that is in the first quarter, the growth rate was 11.9%. And this was, you know, the highest, really high speed rates coming out of the, the back of the huge stimulus China got during the financial crisis. Uh, So 10.3 is a substantial slowdown, but in particular, June, the final month of the quarter, was especially slow because of the genuine tightening measures introduced by the central government to take the steam out of parts of the property sector. So I think while we won't see another sort of huge stimulus in China, we might see them sort of easing off the tightening measures that have been introduced um, uh, in recent months. To put it crudely, do you think the Chinese government know what they're doing? Because They've had this enormous stimulus. There's been this kind of almost officially sanctioned panic about they've got to grow at 8% or there'll be sort of social turmoil. Then there was the suggestion that a lot of this stimulus money was wasted and splurged and ended up in the property market. Now they're trying to slow down again. I mean, is this a a carefully engineered soft landing or is this a bit of a mess? I think they do know what they're doing, but it's always going to look like a mess up close. It's, you know, 1.3 billion people all wanting to go at a helter-skelter rate. The central government does still have the tools to, in a big sense, manage this. You're going to find lots of uh, waste on the ground. You're going to find some really extreme property bubbles. But overall, I don't want to sound like I've drunk the Kool-Aid, but I think they do it pretty well, actually, and they'd be pretty happy with the result we got today. And what about the effect on the rest of us? Because... Of course, with the US still struggling with near double-digit unemployment, Obama in political trouble, the threat of a political backlash against China, whether over currency or trade or, uh, you know, these problems that various American companies like Google have been having in, in China, must increase. And, and the latest figures show that the trade deficit with China is, is only going up. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's this the the threat of the political, big political, genuine political backlash from the U.S. has long been like waiting for Godot. You know, we talk about it for decades, and it's never really come for good reason. Because anything the U.S. did to China would immediately rebound on the U.S. on its consumers, on its companies, uh, on its companies inside the U.S. and also inside China itself. But as you say, we the Chinese export machine is back up into full gear. That includes uh, growth and exports, not just to developing countries, but the U.S. and Europe as well. Maybe that can't last because the steam's coming out of the U.S. at the same time. But having said that, it's the same old, same old. What can't go on forever is going on forever. One just wonders when it will snap. Just on this political question, though, finally, obviously the big political event in America this year is the midterm elections in November. Some analysts I spoke to last time I was in China were worried that that would be the moment when you would get the legislation pushed forward for political reasons and Obama less likely to resist it again for political reasons. Is there any evidence of that? I don't see how the the so-called nuclear option, the Schumer bill, the 25 or 20 percent across the board tariffs on Chinese goods can ever really get up because it's, it's just it would cause damage in all manner of directions. But I think pressure is building. I mean, China has skillfully managed not to make itself an issue in the midterm elections or elections in the past, or it's been pushed off by other issues. But if the big issue in the in the U.S. is the jobless recovery, uh, if that can be connected to China, then the China issue might be ratcheted up uh, a few notches, and, and Beijing would be very worried about that. Richard, thank you very much indeed. Well, that's it for this week from World Weekly at the FT. I'd just like to thank my colleagues who've contributed to William Wallace, Richard McGregor, David Blair, Fiona Simon and Simeon Kerr in Dubai. And thank you all for listening. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.